0: Hello, creatives. I'm Joanna Penn, and this is episode number 605 of the podcast. And it is Sunday, the 20th of February, 2022, as I record this. On today's show, I talk to Craig Martell about his journey from the Marine Corps to military intelligence to consulting, and then 20 books to 50k, and what he sees as the best way to make an indie career right now, plus a discussion of what the biggest indie author conference in the world perhaps even the biggest author conference in the world 20 books vegas looks like and how an introvert might navigate a few days there and yes i am intending to be at 20 books vegas in november 2022 (laughs) covid restrictions allowing of course so that is coming up in the interview section in publishing and book marketing news, well in fact in audio news the Findaway Voices marketplace is now live and open for you to work with narrators and uh, I talked to Will Dagus about this last year and this is now available so you can go to findawayvoices.com and if you uh, set up an account you can browse narrators request auditions, manage the production process end to end and then go on to publish through Findaway and of course reach I think uh, over 40 plus retailers, library services and more. So uh, I use Findaway for every audiobook now and I love it. So that is the marketplace is now open. And of course, if you have experience with ACX for audio, you know that that's what they have offered, which is a sort of um, not so much a narrator marketplace, but you can request auditions and you can uh, work, find people through that process. And now Findaway offers this and they have a much more uh, sort of intense and useful <laughs> page for the narrator profile if you go and have a look uh, you can listen to different samples and uh, I think it's really really good so check that out and uh, I'll link in the show notes but that is the Findaway Voices Marketplace. So in my personal update, I have (laughs) finished, well not finished, I've done the first re-edit of Crypt of Bone, my second ever novel, and I'm glad to say it didn't need quite as much work as Stone of Fire. Now I edited it first within ProWritingAid and I've now, so basically with ProWritingAid you can have it on your computer and then you can open Scrivener within ProWritingAid and then, which basically treats each of the chapters as a separate document and then it um, reviews it so and they have this overall score which is just super useful so I might open a chapter and it might be sort of 62% and the goal is to get it over 90% and then you get like a little badge (laughs) woohoo I'm so motivated by little badges, it's hilarious, I'm such a child. <laughs> anyway, so now I, so I do that first edit through ProWritingAid, do quite a lot of rewrites and then um, I've now printed it out and I will hand edit it and then I'll make the changes and send it to my editor in the next week or so. Uh In the meantime, I, I've just uploaded the paperback for Stone of Fire on Amazon and will get the large print and hardback done again for Amazon, KDP print and Ingram, and I'm re- I've with I'm in the process, I guess, of withdrawing all the old editions. Which you know you can't actually you can cancel the publication, so no one can buy new ones. But of course, there's always secondhand editions of of older things, and it's- it will be <laughs> it's funny because of course Stone of Fire was originally called Pentecost, and I should dig out one of those old copies that I still have somewhere and compare that original and original, original version to this 2022 edition. Uh, And if you have a copy of Pentecost as it was back then, um, you know, you never know, maybe that'll be worth something one day. (laughs) But now Crypt of Bone, same deal. Uh, But I, I definitely, I definitely improved by the second novel. I have just I've used new ISBNs, by the way, for the new print books. I will have a solo episode coming out on the whole process with craft and publishing tips. I just need to finish that, record it, and I will get that out. Promise it is. I have written a draft. I just need to go through and finish it. So that's sort of on the creative side. I, I tell you what, I am I am desperate to get into writing something new. I have a short story that I'm kind of half in. I, I did a big chunk of... Um, One of my travel books last weekend, I was just like, I just need to write something new. But It's definitely worth doing. Anyway, this week, I also had a day out in London. I went to the Jura exhibition at the National Gallery. And if you know uh, Albrecht Jura, um, sort of 15th century, 15th, 16th century um, uh, printmaker, artists. And I use Jura's apocalypse prints in Crypt of Bones. So it was really good timing that I could see the exhibition. And what was really interesting, what I wanted to tell you about was the use of the term self-publishing in the exhibition. So this is at the National Gallery, which is one of, you know, the UK's most prestigious galleries, basically. And they write next to you the prints and the paintings and the images uh, a little description, you know, like you see at a museum or a gallery. And a, a reading from it from one of the pictures of the apocalypse, it says, this is the last of the 15 full-page woodcuts in Durer's revolutionary self-published book, The Apocalypse. Originally published in 1498. And so I love that because I don't think I've ever seen the term self published used in that way. And Durer, of course, you know, William Blake was probably the most famous in terms of self publishing everything. He did the words, he did the images, he did the bindings, he was a uh, a printer, he did he had his own printing press, I mean, he did it all. And I love that because we come from a long tradition. Now seeing these pages, these printed pages that have lasted more than 500 years also makes me more determined to make limited edition physical books. And uh, I... I'm going uh, to the bookbinders this week and I've made some tiny versions of a thousand Fiend changers which is really cool. I love them. And what's what's really interesting I've been talking to this guy about um where you know what to print the text on because of course to do a short print run you can't just do one copy. But with print on demand you can do one copy and then what we're going to do is just take the covers off the print on demand and do and rebind them with interesting covers. So yeah, I'm I'm pretty excited about this and um, Uh, I've talked before that I'm kind of going more digital, more physical in in my future. So in terms of more digital, I'm delving into Web3, blockchain, NFTs, AI. And then I also want to get more physical with limited editions, obviously travel in the real world and walking and all of those things and fitness and and all of that. So more digital, more physical. That's how I see uh, the future. I also went to the British Museum to see the World of Stonehenge exhibition and I actually went to see Sea Henge, which if you haven't heard of is rarely seen in public because basically (laughs) it is a series of oak pillars from dated to 2049 nine B C. So that's like four thousand years old oak pillars, and they were uh, they emerged out of the sea. They were in a circle with this massive tree in the centre for what m- must have been some kind of sacrifice, <laughs> which of course I'm going to write about at some point. And I I loved seeing seahenge, and there were lots of bones, and you can see pictures on Instagram and Facebook at JF Pen Author if you're interested. But it was it was awesome, and. <laughs> it was so great i mean we all the restrictions are pretty much gone here in the uk you could still wear masks uh, but and there's a lot of people don't wear masks and it, it just felt very free. There was no sense of fear in the air and it was so refreshing. And in fact, when I got back here, I only went for the day and I got back and I could barely sleep. I had this massive jolt of energy to my creative system. <laughs> my mind was teeming with so many ideas. I had to I had to keep getting up through the night and writing down these ideas. And it, it was one of those much needed artists date that I have missed, missed, missed for the last couple of years and I am so glad to be back out in the world filling my creative well and of course you can see you can go to British Museum I don't know forward slash Henge or Stonehenge or something and see pictures but to, they had a sound gallery next to it and you could kind of it was it was just something I wanted to see in person and I hope you are starting to do these things again as hopefully the fear is sort of starting to ebb away One more thing. I know this is a longer personal update, but it's been a big week. I feel like it's been a big week. And I want to recommend James Altucher's new book, Skip the Line, which I read on the train actually to London and back, which also gave me loads of ideas. So the principle applies to publishing in so many ways, skipping the line, basically. We are skipping the line by self-publishing, which is why so many people get still so angry at this creative choice how dare we decide to put our words into the world without a gatekeeper's approval how dare we earn a living from selling direct to readers instead of through bookstores and these empowered attitudes challenge an established order we essentially skip the line as durer did as william blake did um you know, I, I love that. I think it's, it's awesome. It's also an important attitude to have as things continue to change. As James Altucher says, the key to skipping the line is to constantly live in the world of not knowing, to constantly be curious, but not threatened by what's next. And he talks about being detached from the results of experiments in skipping the line. And I needed that pep talk as I get ever closer to minting my first NFTs, which, let's face it, will be launched in a world where practically no one will want them. Or know what to do with them. I mean, literally. But then I launched this podcast in March 2009. And it was like howling into the wind for the first six months. And then whispering to a few people in a corner for the next few years. And it really did take years. And same with self-publishing. Back in uh, 2008, 2009, we were... Pariahs, we really were. Even when I returned to the UK, I still remember going to a publishing conference in 2012 and basically being treated like some kind of weird curiosity. Um, some some of the things that people said to me back back then are kind of unbelievable. <laughs> But now, of course, self-publishing and uh, being an indie author is an empowered choice and a business choice and a creative choice. And that's exciting. So, yes, I am grateful for the experiment of this show because it has turned into something creatively satisfying, useful to my audience, you lot, and provides multiple streams of income and marketing for my books. And I can only trust that doing experiments with NFTs and other things will result in something in the future, even if it's just lessons learned. (laughs) So check out Skip the Line, Ingenious Simple Strategies to Propel Yourself to Wealth, Success and Happiness by James Altucher. So thanks for all your emails and tweets and comments this week. At Story Gusto on Twitter says, just listening to the podcast with C. Ruth Taylor, indie publishing in Jamaica and the Caribbean, Caribbean. (laughs) loving the perspective and drive of Ruth. She's right. We need more books from this part of the world. Fab, fab, fab which is great. And Stella Oni said, uh, I love the episode with Ruth. You really opened my mind to the possibilities of audio for people like me, British Nigerian with a Nigerian accent. Not sure I can read audio, but I can explore what I can do with this. And I love this comment from Stella because this is exactly my point. And I did say this to Ruth and I hope you listen to the interview uh, because her, I love the Nigerian and Jamaican. I mean, Her her accent is Jamaican. Um, My sister-in-law is Nigerian. So it it's, it's listening to different accents, but the point is everybody wants to hear things in a voice that resonates in their head. And in my head, the voice, of course, when I read, the voice is a British woman who sounds like me. (laughs) When Stella reads, in her head will be a voice like her. When Ruth reads, it's a voice like hers. And so this is why I'm so passionate about pushing AI for voice, because there is absolutely no way in the world we can have every book available and every accent and every language without AI. (laughs) So I'm really a believer in abundance in voices and the importance of your voice, whatever. I mean, no one sounds exactly like me either. Um, we all have different voices and different attitudes. So yeah, I really, I'm, I'm so glad, Stella, that you loved the possibilities there. And I hope all of you uh, with different accents from me, which let's face it, is going to be most of you listening, <laughs> think what you could do uh, or what you would like to hear in a voice like yours. And also thanks to Andy, a new listener, who sent a picture of a snowy scene from New Hampshire with temperatures below freezing, even as spring emerges here in Bath. And um, the snowdrops are out and the crocuses and the buds are just unfurling on the trees. And yeah, I am pretty excited. I do love spring. So, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen. You can send me pictures of where you're listening. You can email me, joanna at thecreativepen.com, or leave a comment on the blog or the YouTube channel. I love to hear from you, it makes this more of a conversation. So, this episode is sponsored by Pro Writing Aid. Very apt, given I am spending so much time in it right now doing my rewrites of Crypt of Bone. So, what is Pro Writing Aid and why should you consider writing software? Well, before you send your book to your editor, it should be the best that you can make it. And Pro Writing Aid can help you do that with its suggestions for improvement. And, like I was talking about, it's got these kind of little um, report things on the side and the percentages, and you can improve things by tweaking stuff. And it underlines things and tells you help for things. And it's really really good. I I literally wish I had had it when I wrote those novels originally because it would be so much better. Even though I worked with professional editors, I think getting our books the best they can be before sending them to someone else is a good idea. So we'll do things like sentence length variation and complexity, adverbs, repeated words, dialogue tags, commas, typos for different types of English, issues with wording like you just started three sentences in a row with the same word, which I find surprisingly useful. <laughs> it has reports on things like passive voice, pacing, and which is very cool. You can create your own custom style guide, which I only just discovered. And uh, when you're do when you're doing a series like um, my Arcane series is twelve books, you can set up a custom style guide, and that will help you with some of the things that you have in your series. So I use ProWritingAid several times in my process before sending to my editor and then after i get my edits back i make those edits and then i run it through pro writing aid one more time with my short stories i don't use a human editor i only use pro writing aid and uh, i love how i can write in scrivener and open the project within pro writing aid and uh, it will update it and then i can close it and open scrivener and it's all changed oh i just like you can tell how much i love this tool and Yes, Pro writing Aid uses AI and so it's always improving, it's always learning and it's just become a very important tool in my writing process. They have integrations with MS Word, Chrome and Google Docs and a plagiarism checker which uh, I definitely recommend if you are worried about that or if you write with AI tools like PseudoWrite to avoid inadvertent plagiarism. Right, obviously I think it's amazing. <laughs> And I love having ProWritingAid as a sponsor of the podcast because I totally believe in their tool. Um, So you can check out the free edition or get 25% off the premium edition by using my link prowritingaid.com forward slash Joanna, J-O-A-N-N-A. That's prowritingaid.com forward slash Joanna. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time in creating the show and all my in-between (laughs) episodes are supported by my wonderful patrons on patreon.com forward slash the creative pen. Thanks to new patrons this week. Kathy Norville, Glory Medina and CM. And thanks to everyone supporting the show. And especially if you've been supporting since the early days, uh, many years now, I, you really are brilliant. And I appreciate your support. And this weekend, I did the Q&A. And uh, I always talk a bit more personally in the q and I answer questions. And if you support the show with just a few dollars a month or a couple more dollars if you're feeling generous or pounds or euros or whatever uh then you'll get that extra monthly q a and the backlist so lots more audio right you can support the show at patreon.com p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen let's get into the interview Craig Martell is the author of over 70 books alone and co-author of over 50 more, spanning science fiction, thrillers, and fantasy, as well as non-fiction for indie authors. He also co-hosts and runs the 20 Books to 50K Facebook group and live events. So welcome, Craig.
1: Thank you. Thank you. for it's great being on the show. Thank you for having me.
0: Oh, no, I'm, I'm really interested to talk to you. So before we get into now, let's take a step back, because you have some really interesting former careers in the Marine Corps, the military intelligence, law school, and business consulting. So why, with all of these different things, did you get into writing and publishing?
1: Well, I've always loved uh, stories. I've read thousands of science fiction books. I always had a book with me wherever I was, uh, no matter what I was doing. And I wrote my first book when I was 13 or 14, and uh, that book languished, and then I joined the Marine Corps and went off, and And uh, last year, my sister, who had the book, because my, my parents made her type it up, uh, and I, I didn't know that, and she found it. She found my whole first manuscript that I hand wrote, and like a quarter of it is typed, and so I've got that. So I wrote but whatever I'm doing at the time, I commit myself to it. So I didn't write then again until after I retired from the second career uh, uh, the being a lawyer and then just started writing. And I wrote full time because I already had uh, my retirement income and I was OK and I needed to take some downtime. So now, of course, I have a freak level of workload as an author and with the conferences and with 20 books to 50K.
0: Mm. So writing was always part of your... Your well, reading was always part of your life, but why did you think when you retired? Oh, I know I'll become an author.
1: Oh, well, that was uh, very pragmatic and fairly pedestrian. In that, I retired from being a, a business consultant uh, as a lawyer, so I got into the corporate offices and uh, I was deployed all the time. I was up on the North Slope and in, inside the Arctic Circle in the oil fields, and uh, so I retired from that. So I came back down to, to my house here in, outside Fairbanks, Alaska. And uh, the yard needed cleaned up, so like, I need to do some of this outside work. So I went out there and I'm doing stuff. I built this big brush pile and I tried to light it and uh, I lit myself on fire. So I uh, so the pragmatic nature is me sitting here inside, vowing to not do outdoor work again because the manly stuff was uh, beyond me it, with my with bandages on the second degree burns on my leg. And uh, said, hey, I think, I think I'll think i write that book that I always wanted to write. <laughs> so it was pragmatic. So I didn't light myself on fire a second time.
0: <laughs> What's well, funny, though, is you say manly stuff. You were in the Marine Corps and military intelligence. Yes. Many people consider this quite manly, even though I'm sure there's lots of women as well. <laughs> but um, yeah. But how how is that previous career come into your writing now? Because I think you do write military sci-fi, amongst other things, don't you? I,
1: yes, I do. In the Marine Corps, in a lot of extremely tense situations, that is when you hear some of the funniest things ever. And so i work worked all of those into my books. And so I've gotten enough fodder from a 20-year uh, career in the Marine Corps to include in all of my books and never duplicate things. So uh, that's, I, I think, the dialogue and the interaction between individuals in those high-stress situations is what helps bring realism to my fiction whether thrillers or science fiction and makes it far far more realistic even even sci-fi well into the future, it's still the human interaction is unique and people can relate to it. So uh, that and then working as a business consultant I try to work in those uh, leadership lessons and overall I think it, uh, it it has given me a good product.
0: So you're, of course, incredibly prolific, both as an individual author and with co-writing. So tell us about your writing process and your routine now.
1: <clears throat> I I call myself a part-time author now. Uh, when I first started, I, I I was willing to work twelve hours a day, and I sat here at my computer twelve hours a day, trying to get a thousand words, and I didn't always make it. But then uh, things started clicking. And I got better, so I wrote a uh, hundred thousand words in sixty-one days. But I was working twelve hours a day, seven days a week, trying to get at least a thousand. Sometimes I, I, and then towards the end, I got a lot more as I could see the story unfold before me. And then uh, uh, that's what I've always done. But then I start. I took over uh, running twenty books to fifty k, as well as we started the conferences. And so those take up probably a full time. Those are a couple thousand hours a a year that I contribute to 20 books of 50 K because I believe in it. I did things in the Marine Corps. No one should have to do. So uh, I'll be making up for that for the rest of my life. And 20 books of 50 K is that opportunity to give back in a way that matters because it's helping people to establish and develop their own careers and support themselves, which is a big thing. I mean, you can give money away, but that's not the same as uh, teaching someone how to fish so they can support themselves and they get that thrill and mm. that satisfaction of supporting themselves. So that's my daytime job. And now writing part-time, two to three hours a day is all I need to get two, 3,000 words. And that's enough for plenty of books because I have a huge support team. So it's not like I wrote one book and then I go back and reread it and reread it again and reread Now, nah, once I type the end, I hand it over to my team. Uh, they'll, they'll beat it up. They'll work through it. I'll answer questions. We'll, we'll fix whatever needs fixed. Uh, editor will take care of it proofreaders will jump on it and then we publish it so even if I finish a book and I don't publish it for two months because it's going through that quality control process in those next two months I'm writing another book or two.
0: Oh, there's a f- loads of things I want to come back on <laughs> first of all you said at first it was taking you 12 hours to write around a thousand words um a day and then you said things started clicking uh, so can you remember when did those things start to click? Like h- how many words do you think you'd written by the time things started clicking and what things started clicking?
1: When I first started writing, it's like I want to write a post-apocalyptic book. And so I know where I knew where I wanted to start. I knew some situations I wanted to put in the book, but I didn't know how it was going to end. And so I think this was the big holdup as I was starting. And also, when I first started writing, I'd keep going back through, back through trying to make sure that wording was perfect and all that. And I had no idea what perfect was, even though I read thousands of books, right? Uh, it's it, You don't understand until after you write more. So I just needed to write more. So then I started free writing and, uh, and trying to get through, show the situations, keep a workflow with conflict and resolution and keep that engagement. What really clicked was knowing where I wanted to end. And so this, it took until my fourth book. And my fourth book was a thriller. And that one, I knew exactly where I wanted to start. I knew exactly where I wanted to end. And I wrote that book, 82,000 words in like three weeks. And another book later, my first military science fiction, I wrote that book, 108,000 words in 17 days because I knew exactly where I was starting and where I was finishing. So that is my process now is I write the first chapter and I write the last chapter. And then I put all this stuff in between. It makes it so much easier if you know where you're going to end up.
0: So do you outline or do you just um, free write once you, you know where it's going?
1: I, ha- I outline in my head. I don't put a formal outline on paper, but I, I know the uh, starting point. I know the finish point and uh, all the stuff in between. I'll add side plots or subplots based on how long I want the book to be.
0: Mm, Okay, no, that's cool. And you also mentioned your support team and a QA process or quality control. So I also spent many years in business consulting. So I come from that sort of process driven world as well. But actually, one of the the issues, I guess, still leveled at indie authors is a lack of quality control. So tell us your thoughts on the word quality when it comes to indie authors and, and how can we, I guess, banish that accusation, but also ignore it in, in some senses.
1: This is, this is the big I'm bigger about is everyone is responsible for their own actions. And when you first start out, You can write a great story, but if you don't have an editor, and I didn't. My first book I published without having any editing besides me, I did my own cover. So I published my first book at zero cost, and that was uh, kind of cool, but I sold 53 copies. I think 50 were to my dad. Uh, He was he was proud, and he still is my biggest fan. But the uh, quality control process, until you publish, it's chicken or the egg, but it really is the chicken has to come first, and the chicken is the book. And you got to get that book out there before you start developing fans that might be willing to help you out before you can say, well, I need an editor. Well, what have you written? I haven't written anything yet. Well, come back when you have, because uh, people want their first book. They're notoriously late in getting it done. Hey, I should have it done next month. And it's like six months later, they finally hand it over and the editor isn't just going to sit there and wait for you. So uh, making sure you align things and getting your editor locked in and making sure you get the manuscript a good manuscript to the editor on time and you and i both know project management right that you have the timelines you have the various elements that go into it and you've got to hit your dates if you tell your editor you're going to give it to her on one february give it to her on one february Uh, and that way she'll get it done quickly get it back and that's what uh, i have thrived on is you get it to them on time you get it back quickly uh, and I, I, buy time I had for three years, I had an editor on a retainer. So I just paid her at the beginning of the month for a hundred thousand words. And that's what I'd give her. And if I went over well, I paid her extra, and if I went under, she got to keep it. So the, the onus was on me to get it to her, but I would get my book back within a week from the editor every time. And this is, and that's my standard now is I need the book back within a week, but I'll give it to you when I say, I'm going to give it to you. I gave my editor to schedule for the whole year. My insider team, they they were uh, developed over time, just fans who became super fans who wanted me to do better. They didn't want, hey, look at me. I'm helping uh, Craig Martel, big name. No, no. That's, uh, even though they're in every one of my books listed in the dedication, it's still they want me to do better. We have great conversations on a, a side platform. So we work out any kind of plot issues. And usually there aren't any. There's little tweaks and they're easy to fix. They don't tell me how to fix stuff. They tell me, hey, here's an issue. This this took me out of the story or this uh, isn't technically correct. I have two folks with PhDs, one in industrial psychology and the other in engineering. So they know what they're talking about in helping me shape the approach. And then proofreaders, once I get it done, then it goes through a proofreading team uh, of more volunteers, folks willing to uh, just read, read my stuff ahead of time. And that helps immensely. To clean up the last of the typos. So what the editor does is provide that continuity. So things are capitalized the same way. Capitalization rules are extremely fluid in, in my mind.
0: Mm, <laughs> mine t- mine is- too. <laughs> That's what I rely on an editor for.
1: <laughs> oh, absolutely. And uh, and commas and stuff like that. I could care uh, on commas. My, my editor, I think, charges by the comma. So I get a lot of them. And so... That stuff, continuity and make sure that the grammar is consistent. I write third person, omni, past tense. So have to have past tense. You don't squeeze in an is in the middle of a narrative and things like that. So that's clear. No typos. The technology is clean. And still a typo or two will get through. But it's important to put that product in front of the readers in a way that they're used to. So I indent my paragraphs and I also space my paragraphs. And I know that's, that drives some people apoplectic, but those some people are authors. My readers have never had a problem over it. And I just checked on my, my very first series that I published. I have 125,000 books sold in that one series and I used indents and an extra, like a quarter of a space in between paragraphs. And that's part of it is the presentation and consistent consistency. When you get a Craig Martell book, you're going to get indent and a little space in between paragraphs as well. It's a small indent at the beginning of each paragraph, but that's just what I like. But still quality control, uh, giving them a product that looks professional because it is professional. And uh, and then they can't tell the difference whether they just got a book from Penguin or they got a book from Craig Martell, Inc.,
0: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just want to come back on the, the collaboration there. you talk there about having your insider team, your support team, you've got all these people in your quality control process, and obviously 20 bucks to 50k, which we're going to talk about more in a minute. But do you think this ability to collaborate, which obviously is part a massive part of your success? Does this also come from the military in that you had to work with other people for success? Or whether that is just something in your personality?
1: Well, a a little bit of that uh, from my past, because as a business consultant, it was all about the team. It was making individuals better by helping them support their team members. But I have to tell you, the greatest influence in collaborations was Michael Anderle, because I've been working closely with him for the last five years and uh, showing the benefits of collaboration, especially when it comes to learning to write better, because I, as I'm writing more, I'm reading less. And... By collaborating, I get to see different approaches to shaping a scene, to wording sentences, to setting things up. And I have a lot of collaborators who have fallen by the wayside over the years. And I have just a couple right now, but they are most excellent authors. Uh, The way they use words to shape the scenes, to build the emotional engagement from the readers is exceptional. So that's my my collaborators right now and I don't need to collaborate again. I've got enough titles. I don't need actually need to publish another book. Except that I've got a lot more stories to tell.
0: Mm, that's always the trick. But um, if people want to collaborate, I mean, everyone's now listening going, oh, but you're Craig Martell. It's easy for you to collaborate. <laughs> but obviously you weren't always that person in terms of the writing community. So what are your tips for authors who want to collaborate with other people? Is there anything they should do to attract those opportunities or tips for making it through?
1: I, I wrote a whole book on that. So if you look up collaborations in Craig Martell, and actually that's, it's for free in uh, 20 Books of 50K, you can just download it. It's got some sample contracts, but it goes into a lot of that. Why do you want to collaborate? And some people, it's because they want to build their backlist. And for me, it was exceptional at building those extra uh, books. I have 23 different series now, and a lot of those were through collaborations. But it's also feeding the readership. As I've built readership, they read a hell of a lot faster than I, I can write, even as fast as I write. So my being able to offer these extra books... That helped get that out there, get uh, get books into their hands. That hopefully helped them uh, pass the day. Uh, I'd like to say that I write escape fiction, but the collaborations. How do you collaborate, and, and how do you find a collaborator? There's all kinds of different relationships. As the junior, senior. You find somebody who's looking for a collaborator who is already established, or you find a fellow author who writes in your genre, and you're both trying to find your way, and then you collaborate 50-50. Uh, or you find uh, one, you could even start ghostwriting. I know people have uh, ghostwriters. Oh, my God. It, it is a way to learn your, your trade. Imagine somebody gives you a An outline that, hey, look at this. This is a great story. And then you get to add life to it, even though you'll never, your name will never be associated with it. You'll have that, hopefully you'll have that interaction with the author and learn how they want the story to unfold. You can take that, you learn Uh, Jasmine Walt is another great story of a ghostwriter who then went solo. And by the time she wrote her first book, she was extremely well established in writing great stories. So it's uh, where are you in your journey? That's only you can answer that. In regards to do I need to learn to write better because you got to write a good book, and that's I think another problem that people attribute to indies because it's so easy to publish. Uh, a lot of books aren't ready for prime time, but the readers are the ones who determine uh, to move forward or not. So mm-hmm. if you've got a book with a uh, with a thousand reviews, I think you can pretty much say that, that book's been around, even though, though other people will bag on it, like. People bag on Fifty Shades of Grey. That book sold 125 million copies.
0: Yeah, I, I, I don't think she cares. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh my god, it sold 125. It's a great book. Of it, I mean, it's not one I'm going to read.
0: Hey, oh, I've read 125
1: it. Million copies. <laughs>
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, Well, it's interesting. You said that one of the problems for indies is it's too easy to publish and perhaps some people rush in. And you also mentioned earlier that it was probably the fourth book where things started to click for you. I also feel like it was probably my fifth novel where I was like oh <laughs> I understand some of this now and and so it's interesting Or even though my earlier books I'm sure yours too is still have good reviews and stuff like that I, I yeah. now feel like I'm a better writer and um, so that might be one of the problems is maybe publishing too early but what are some of the other mistakes you see fiction writers I guess or non-fiction writers making that, that prevent them reaching more readers or, or, or making more money?
1: And I'll tell you, as a business consultant, again, everybody has to start somewhere. And unless you get feedback, and this is the process improvement uh, part of what I did as a business consultant, if you don't publish, how do you know? How do you know if your story is good? How do you know how it's being received by the readers? And so I think it's really important to publish your book, even if it's not great, because it gives you a point from which to improve. And now you've got that baseline and improvement. I think one of the problems that a lot of authors who progress through their career without progressing, I mean, they keep publishing books, is that they don't get the right feedback and they're not listening to it. There's some people who will ask for feedback, especially we've seen this in 20 books to 50K and some folks will say hey that first paragraph that first chapter is not engaging and then the the author will argue with them it's like stop people are trying to help here you asked for help they're trying to give you help and you're saying no i think my book obviously the readers don't understand uh, as soon as you as soon as you're blaming the readers you're done because uh, the readers they pay your paycheck <laughs> so you have to get it in the right reader's hands. And I think this is the biggest challenge. Uh, one Another thing we see in 20 Books of 50K is I wrote this book. I don't know what genre it is, it's in, which is unfathomable to me. <laughs> but they, they yeah. wrote what they wanted, and they don't understand how in the – because genre equals marketing. The whole reason genres exist is from publishers in the past said, ah. People who read this book will probably like this book and they develop oh, that. That's a Western, that's science fiction, that's spec, speculative fiction, That's and and so on down the line. So genre is nothing more than marketing. So these people di- don't look at the marketing side of it. It's just, I wrote a book that's that's this, it's got these other elements and this. Uh, keep your elements under control. But I read thousands of science fiction books, so I knew I was writing science fiction. And that was my target audience. And I've always resonated well with that audience because I give them more of what I liked when I was growing up. Mm. That's I think that's the biggest challenge is they don't know what genre to go after. And then marketing marketing isn't hard. If you can write a book, you can market, but you gotta know where you're marketing and that marketing element is the genres you need to know what genre you wrote in for Pete's sake and I really like people who read the genre they write in
0: yeah I literally can't understand how people can try and write a book in a genre they don't read that just seems odd to me
1: (laughs) well and it's really hard to sell a book like that too I don't know what genre this is well you're gonna you're gonna have real problems selling it I mean I, I don't know what else to tell people Besides, oh, give me the book. I'll read it. And I'll let No, I'm not going to do that. I don't have <laughs> OK,
0: time. that is not that's not an offer for you, for everyone to send you their no, book now.
1: <laughs> no, no, don't do that.
0: Uh, I do want to come back. You just said, quote, marketing isn't hard. And I know everyone's going, ah, what do you mean? Marketing isn't hard. So what do you do for marketing?
1: Have a multi-pronged approach. And also, it really, really helps your marketing if you have a big backlist. So if you only have three books. The In order to market well, you need to give people products. Okay, take off your artist hat and put on your business hat. Your product, if you can do a series, then people come to buy uh, get that first book. However, you can get it into the right reader's hands. And then it's got to be a good book. And then book two and book three. So writing in series is one of the biggest things you can do as a new author. In order to establish your readership, you can always do whatever the hell you want later. Once you've established that readership and then you'll have an, you'll have a relationship with those readers and be able to give them more of what they liked in that first book or give them more of something. Hey, here's something a little different, but it's still me. And if you've got uh, super loyal super fans, then it puts you in a, it puts you in a good position, but starting off, I, I would say write a three book series and then you can always promote the hell out of that first book. Mm. Uh, no, know, knowing what genre you're in, and then put it on sale. You can do it for free, but then you got to push some big numbers. Uh, you can put it on sale. People who buy a book are more likely to read it than those who get it for free. And there's a lot of free books out there. So I have gone away from free stuff, even though I will still put a book out for free. It's still, I have a very targeted readership. I have a great targeting list on my Facebook uh, uh, page to get the book into their hands when it's free. <clears throat> but otherwise. Put it on sale. People who buy a book are more likely to read it. And then book two and book three, make sure it's a great book with the back matter that says, hey, oh, by the way, if you like this book, here's book two and, and a direct link. That is one of the best things you can do to help your own success and realize where the problem is or where the success is. People learn more from, from failure than they do success. So you publish your first book, you publish your second, publish your third. First book, uh, you have a 100 people buy it. Second book, you have five people buy it. 5% read-through rate. Ah, first book sucks. I mean, no matter what uh, other way to look at it, it's like they're not buying book two. <clears throat> so you have to go back and look. Well, I need to write a better book one. And then you murder board it. You take it before some readers and say, what's wrong with this book? Why aren't people reading through the second book? And that's a process improvement. And then, you, then you write a new series. People, people are in love with their books. And also some people say, might have 10 years invested in that first book. And if it doesn't sell because there's issues with it, then it's easy for them to stop and say, well, I'm not going to write anymore. It took me 10 years on this one. I don't have that much life left. And, and I understand. But if you're looking to make a career out of this or even make enough money to pay your mortgage or make your car payment each month, then that process improvement is critical to for long-term viability within the industry.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I also want to circle back to something else you said, you talked about feeding the readership. And I think this is very interesting, especially because you have 23 series and my experience with my series, because I write, (laughs) I do write cross genre and in different things. And the people who read the thrillers might not necessarily read my fantasy, for example. And so you kind of have to keep feeding readers across different genres. And I don't write as fast as you for sure. And it's difficult. And I feel like one of the the issues, especially when people are not as prolific as you are, that there is an issue in the community with burnout or trying to go, trying to write super fast when that might not be someone's personality or the way they choose to do things. So, how do we balance that? Feeding the readership with potential burnout.
1: You can be wildly successful publishing one book a year if you don't jump genres. Uh, so, you, so as you build your readers, you want those same readers. Reading book two, you want those same readers reading book three, and it's just a year apart. So you build your readership, uh, short stories and other things you can give them. Stay engaged with them. Send them a newsletter each month. And a huge, huge fan of newsletters. That's your conversation with your readership. So starting that newsletter is the best way to stay engaged. You can tell them to follow you on Amazon. That's fine because Amazon's deliverability, their emails is great. But still, your email is where you're talking about, hey, here's what's going on. Here's where I am. I'm on chapter four. I'm on chapter six, uh, progressing month after month. And hey, here, book one, I'm going to put book one on sale for when book two comes out. So 99 cents. Please please share with your friends. You've been with me on this journey for a year. I thank you. Book two's coming and, and, and things like that. So you can do it. But that's what I mean by feed your readership. You just have to manage the reader expectations. You don't have to Uh, Be overboard and give them a book a month, unless that's how you publish. And that's how I built my readership. However, I've given them enough books that they're good with. They're like, hey, I'm good with a book every three months or four months. And especially in between, I'll recommend books. Uh, I'm uh, the group of science fiction authors that I kind of hang out with. They write good books. They write books that I read. So when they put a book on sale, I'll share it, say, Hey, here, here you go. Here's a book that uh, you might want to check out uh, space opera mill sci-fi. It's cutting edge. You'll like it probably more than me, but please stay with me Mm. uh, doing that kind of approach.
0: Yeah, I think that's good. And I think you're right. There's ways to engage with your readership that doesn't involve another book a month. So I think those are some great tips. So let's come on to 20 books to 50K. And uh, I still think this title is so brilliant. I mean, it's brilliant marketing. It's brilliant marketing in a way, but I know it also scares people. So obviously the premise being, once you have 20 books, you should be making around $50,000, I think you meant, per year. So does that number still stand? Do you find that if people do have 20 books, they can make around 50K?
1: Oh, no, not at all. That's not what it is. It's actually a retirement plan. It's If you have 20 books and each book is making $7.50 a day, then you'll make $50,000 in a year. And Cabo San Lucas, if for, you can retire there for about $35,000 a year. But if you want to retire comfortably, then that's $50,000. So it's a retirement plan. It's uh, just making $750 a day. It's calling it down to a bite-sized piece that people can digest. Because if you have a book out to make $750, if it's in Kindle Unlimited, you sell one copy, you get a thousand page reads, there you are, Bob's your uncle, you're making money. And that's all you need. So it's ginning a retirement plan down to a bite-sized chunk that then you can put into action. And what we found is that people make, if they write in a series, they get better with each book, they'll make 50,000 a year well ahead of 20 books Mm. because it's not a linear progression.
0: Yeah, I would agree with you. And as someone who didn't write twenty books in one series, but wrote—I've written about thirty-five books, but across at least four different series—I thought the numbers would still held true, like from what I've seen. But equally, I totally agree with you. If you'd written twenty books in in a series that really does convert, then yeah, you're going to get there quicker. But equally, I—I I think non—I don't know about you. Well, I, I mean, I focus a lot more on non-fiction than you do. But non-fiction to me sells at higher prices and in different formats. So audio and print are a lot stronger for nonfiction than they necessarily are for, for fiction. So I, I feel like there's different models of getting to that 20 books or that money.
1: Oh, oh, absolutely. Uh, you might write one or two books and make 50,000 a year. It depends on all of that other background stuff. But 20 books of 50K, it was simply a retirement plan and something to show people that you can be successful if you work hard at the right things and that right thing is not necessarily 20 books in one series, but 20 books that are progressively better Uh, You write four books in a series, and then you start a new series. You take what you learned in those first four books, and you add it to the new series. And their first four books may never sell well, but your new series, hey, these are written really well. The story is engaging. And uh, that's what we hear from a lot of people as well is, oh, I've got got 20 books that don't sell at all. But this new series really rocked, and it's where all my money comes from. It's the Pareto rule. Uh, 20% of your books are going to be making 80% of your money. And I think that that does hold true that because your first book, I tell everybody, your first book's going to suck and, and to work up from there, but it gives you a place to uh, depart from. If your first book is gangbusters and you sell 200,000 copies, how do you follow that up? And most people cannot because they don't know what they did right. And now if you've been working from, hey, I've done this wrong, I've done this wrong, then you're much, much more likely to be successful later as you chip away and you're doing more and more right. But if you do everything right from the outset, how do you know it was right?
0: Mm, unless you hit it out the park next time, but that, <laughs> that, that doesn't yes, often yeah. happen, for sure. No. But no, that's great. So one of the other things, so the 20 books model a few years back now used to be very focused on Kindle Unlimited and exclusivity to Amazon. But now I really think you seem a lot more open to wide authors and different options for publishing. So why the shift and how has the market changed so that wide publishing is is more of an option?
1: Well, teaching people to fish. We have we have such a broad range of people who are in 20 books. And then most importantly, for 20 Books Vegas this year, we should have about 2,500 people coming, 2,500 authors. And we have a lot of traditionally published authors who come to see what the buzz is, especially some who are a little bit older as they're looking at their bank account and they're not getting the royalty advances that they used to get, if they get any at all. And they're looking at the retirement saying, "I I I could use some money. And this, this self-publishing thing, you get 70% of your royalties. Yes, you do. And that's a good selling point, especially ones that have the established name. How do you trade on your name to make money for you? Uh, We don't, I don't want any cut. 20 books, 50 K is not for profit. I make no money on 20 books, Vegas. It's all about feeding the industry and helping people to help themselves We get our our dopamine hit off the success of the people who come to 20 Books Vegas, the people who uh, are in the group and are trying to do better. And then finally, they're at a point where it's a career for them, something that they never believed possible before joining the group and seeing that, hey, look at all these other people making it. And you're still only competing against yourself, but it's out there and it's available and it's only you. You can do it and here's the information you need.
0: So really, the group has attracted such a wide variety of authors now that you are presenting all the different options within indie. Because I think that's the other thing that's changed. I feel like uh, we we have become such a broad church, and there are so many ways forward. I mean, even things like you see people doing entire book launches on Kickstarter or serializing through Substack, for example. These are things that just weren't even you know possible back when I started. And so it's interesting that you're now much 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 broader which i really like um so what, what and i'm hoping to come to vegas this november covid allowing uh, <laughs> but i must say i'm a little bit nervous i am a, an introvert and you said 2 on 2500 other authors which is kind of crazy so tell us a bit about the event and how do authors cope with it
1: <laughs> oh, the we have scaled up from where we first started we now have uh, we're in balis which is soon going to be Called Horseshoe, by the way, uh, name change, but same same hotel. We have a hundred thousand square feet all to ourselves, and the the resort tower, which is where most of the rooms are, is right over top of the convention center. So you can escape, go back up to your room to recharge. We have a lot of events where there's plenty of space. We have people uh, in wearing high visibility vests. You can go and ask for help, who, who will also be looking for those people who look distressed. And helping move them into a a private room or a quiet place or just telling them, hey, maybe just go back up to your room and recharge. And uh, we've had great success in that it's one tribe. As soon as people start talking to their fellows, they get engaged in, hey, you write urban fantasy, paranormal romance. Oh, my God. And all of a sudden, uh, they're talking and they're engaged and they go off to a, a restaurant or a bar. It's Vegas. Uh, You can't swing a dead cat without hitting a restaurant or a bar. And and they disappear into the moment because uh, introverts, once they connect with somebody, that's it. Uh, The focus of their world is right here. And that helps them relax and become one with the event. One thing we push, uh, and it starts with the badges. Everybody gets the exact same badge. We don't have uh, these ribbons or anything to say special guest and then and, uh, 25,000 bookseller. And, and so people have this big stack of medals like a Soviet general. Uh, no, we all are peers. Uh, we all uh, are, are on equal footing. And you'll find that you might be waiting to buy a drink at the bar and you talk to the person behind you. And then you find out later that person's a seven figure author making seven figures a year. And hey, you're just talking to them like a normal person because they are normal. Everybody in Vegas is normal. We're all the same. We're all authors first. And that's how we that's how we treat each other. It's it's it has been perpetuated since 2017 from our first conference. And how we treat each other is about positive. We try not to let anybody be negative. Some people get negative here or there, but then we go address those issues. And it's it's important for people to understand that. You're not going to like everything, but we've got 12 sessions an hour going. Pick one that you do like and go and and listen and then follow up with the presenter. Uh, don't be afraid of that. And if you don't want to, no big deal. Go back up to your room and send them an email, send them a, a Facebook note saying, hey, I loved your presentation. By the way, here's a question. Uh, you can do it however you want because everybody's in the same boat.
0: Okay, so I love the badge thing. I've been to some of these events where my badges had like X colors on and someone else has some other colors on and little stickers and it's like, ah, (laughs) Yeah. It's you I mean comparisonitis big time so I really like that you do that with the badges but you said 12 sessions an hour I mean that is crazy I did I've watched some of the YouTube um, sessions from last year and for everybody listening you can go and watch these sessions on the YouTube channel um, I'll link to it in the, the show notes and there's some just fantastic sessions but with 12 an hour how do people navigate the the learning side of things
1: tell people before they come to Uh, Establish a goal for what they want out of the show and to remain flexible because they may connect with somebody. They may be talking with a presenter, and it is far, far more important to continue that conversation with that presenter, especially as you're digging into a topic, than to rush off to the next one because the big thing we do is we record every session. They can always go later and watch it on in the Facebook group or on YouTube when it comes out for free. And that's one thing YouTube, the whole world, everybody can watch every one of our sessions, uh, not for profit. So we're not charging anybody, just go on YouTube, but 20 Books events, 20 Books live events, I think is the link. And we have 162 sessions up there from 20 Books Vegas uh, 2021. In 2022, I think we're on track for about 180
0: sessions. I think it's really interesting. So people can plan uh, their schedule, but also plan to have time away and and social time. Anything else you want to tell people about 20 Books Vegas?
1: Oh, we have at least 15 minutes between sessions. And usually it's a half hour. On uh, days Wednesday and Thursday last year, we had a half hour in between each session. So you had plenty of time to go collaborate, coordinate, uh, con- converse with people, go hit the bathroom and hide or run up to your room, grab a soda and then come back down, whatever you might want to do. The, the session, we don't have a break for lunch because we've got so much material to cover. And the big, the one thing that I do differently with 20 Books Vegas and any 20 Books event is I look at what are the needs of the people coming and I try to have sessions for that I don't have I don't just submit, hey, tell me what topic you'd like to cover. No, I I because you get really wide and varied topics that may help three people. And I'd rather have sessions that each one should be able to help a hundred people on a topic. There's so much space because it's Vegas, even though it's busy and there's lights and stuff and it can be overwhelming. You can always escape. You can go outside. You can go someplace else. You can go to your room. You can go to a restaurant. I mean, like I said, no matter where you go in Vegas, you're going to find a restaurant and a good one and uh, go get something nice that you'll overeat. So unless you don't want to, and then uh, go to your room and hide, it's still, (laughs) it's still okay.
0: Yeah. That's fantastic. I, I definitely want to be there. I think what's so brilliant is you guys have grown this to what has to be the biggest and most comprehensive conference for indie authors in the world. (laughs) So, and that's super impressive. I mean, it might even be bigger than some of the biggest, like traditionally published author conferences now. Have you got a sense of it being the biggest? Uh, Yeah,
1: with 2,500 people, it is. I know when RWA had their heyday, they would have more than that but I don't think they're getting that nowadays. And definitely for indies, but for all authors, because it's so author centric. And uh, uh, for people who have gone to author conferences over the years, we had one person who it was their job as a vendor, industry vendor for 30 years. And they said they'd never seen a conference like Uh, 20 Books Vegas, because everybody was positive. People were trying to help each other. She said, every other conference, there's always some level of competition, Mm. uh, some level of hierarchy. And that's one thing. We we destroyed that. We crushed that attitude with our first conference in that we're all the same. Uh, Here's Michael Anderle. Go talk to him uh, anytime you want. He makes uh, well more than seven figures a year. So he's he's here with you. His badge just says Mike on it. And that's it. And uh, there's nothing special with flashing lights for people or, or anything that says, look at me, uh, because that's not what we're about. We're not at look at me. We're at look at you and what are you doing for your career?
0: Brilliant. So where can people find you and your books and also 20 books uh, to 50K online?
1: You can you can find me at craigmartel.com And for 20 books, you can go to 20booksvegas.com. That's 20booksvegas.com. And that's all the information you need about the show as well as the Facebook group 20 books to 50k. It's a registered trademark, but it's also the Facebook group and us. we do hang out on Facebook. We don't have a website for it. We don't just because we're all volunteers running it, nobody makes any money off it. So we're not and we're not we don't charge anything. So we the, the cheapest way is we do it through a Facebook group and that works for us.
0: Brilliant. Well thanks so much for your time Craig. That was great.
1: Oh thanks Joe. Thanks for having me on.
0: I hope you found the discussion with Craig interesting and I love hearing from writers who started later in life after other careers and are making such a success of it. Plus Craig and the 20 books to 50k team pay it forward in such significant ways. I was thinking about this the other day about how the majority of indie authors are happy to help others get into the game and we share information and tips as much as possible. It is a wonderful creative generous community so thank you for being part of it too. So next Monday, I'll be talking to Johnny B. Truant about pivoting on your creative journey. Now, many of you will know Johnny from the self-publishing podcast back in the day, which then became the Story Studio podcast. And actually, I met Johnny uh, way back. Um, probably, well, we, t- we talk about it in the discussion, but essentially I knew Johnny in his previous incarnation and also Sean Platt back in the copy blogger days. And I, I took one of Johnny's uh, courses and um, back way before he ever wrote fiction. And we talk about the creative choices Johnny has made and how it's led to success now as a writer. And very excitingly, his uh, novel and the series Fat Vampire is now in production. For TV, like it's actually being filmed, and it is a fascinating discussion. So happy writing, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.